Amen. Thank you, Luke and Aaron, for leading us in a time of worship through song, perfectly summing up the themes that we've seen in the book of Daniel. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4 is where we are going to be this morning. Daniel chapter 4. It was a beautiful Sunday morning on May 10th when we set out to study the book of Daniel together. Four months and 16 messages later, we find ourselves in the halfway point of this book. And a huge shift is going to happen from chapter 7 on to the end of the book. We've studied narrative. Chapter 1 through 6 is narratives, several different stories, several different accounts that Daniel handpicked for us to read and study. And now, chapter 7 through the end of the book is all prophecy. So there's a big monumental shift. And because of that, I wanted to just kind of pause and take a look backwards. We're, we're, we're at halftime right now. We had the two-minute warning last week, and it's officially halftime. And so we're in the locker room together, and we're preparing to go back out into chapter 7 and figure out all the prophetic elements. And a lot of them we've seen because we studied the book of Revelation together already. So we already are going to be familiar with a lot of what's coming up. So here in the locker room at halftime, before we dive into the third quarter, what I want us to do is kind of look back and ask, what have we learned about God? What have we learned about ourselves? What have we learned about sin, about the nations, about God's sovereignty, about his preservation of his people? What are the lessons that we've taken away from our time together in chapter 1 through 6? So I want to summarize those chapters and then pull out the lessons that we've gained, and there's too many to count, but we're going to do our best to go through several of them together. The reason why I have you in Daniel chapter 4 is because these verses, verse 34 and 35, I believe really could be the theme of Daniel. And it's ironic that they are the theme because they're not written by Daniel, they're written by Nebuchadnezzar. They're recorded for us by Daniel, but they were given to us by Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, a very evil king, who I believe bowed the knee to Yahweh as king over him, as Lord and Savior. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. At the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes toward heaven and my knowledge returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever because his dominion is an everlasting dominion. None above him or before him, all of time in his hands. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is one king reigning over all. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth... And no one can strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? Father, we come before you grateful people. We are so grateful for the last 16 messages that we've been able to go through the book of Daniel. We've been able to study together the last few months of enjoying feeling small in your presence. You are Sovereign, you are king. All of these kingdoms, even these massive, powerful kingdoms like Babylon and Persia, they're nothing compared to your sovereign kingdom. God, we've learned so much 
We've seen so much. But we don't want to walk away from these six chapters without truly living differently because of them. It's not enough simply to say, I know these things to be true. To him who knows what is right but does not do it, that is sin. The demons know that there is a God, but it just leads them to tremble and with anger to kick against you. So Father, I pray that you would, in your grace this morning, show us how to live differently today. May our words change, may our speech change, may our attitudes change because of a reminder of where we've been in this book and what we've seen. Change our hearts. May we be a people that would be so unified around your sovereign control of this world that it would be palpable when people walk in, that they would feel a sense of freedom from anxiety because we know you're on your throne. And yes, the darkness overwhelms our soul as we sang, but you are here with us and we're not alone. And we know the ending of all of human history. We've seen it revealed to us in the book of Daniel. And as we've been studying in Ecclesiastes, we really have two options. We can either fight to gain as much as we can out of this world and then lose it when we die, or we can enjoy what you've given to us to enjoy in this world as a gift and then get gain when we die because we get more of you. So be our teacher now. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our sovereign King. Amen. I want to just do two things this morning. This is going to be a little bit of a different morning. We're not going to go through verse by verse. We've already done that for the last 16 messages. So uh, what I want to do is do a summary of that and then go to the lessons that we've learned from our time in Daniel 1 through 6. So just two main thoughts, summary and lessons. The short summary of these stories and then the lessons learned. Number one, a flyby summary. We began by looking in Daniel uh, by asking the question, why are we going to study this book? We gave five reasons. Number one, Daniel will give us a window into how to live as Christians in a non-Christian culture. Number two, Daniel will give us a window into how to respond to pagan rulers. Number three, God's sovereign control over individuals, peoples, empires, and all of human history will be seen and savored. Number four, God sovereignly protects and sustains his people. We need to learn that. We need to know that and treasure that. And then number five, God is sovereignly working to bring about salvation for all who would turn to him. That's the beauty of this book, that it's going to the nations for God to make a plea to the nations to turn to him and to follow him. And I think that we've already seen all of those five points work themselves out in this study thus far. And so let's just remember all that we've learned in, in just kind of a short, quick flyby summary. We began in chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you can. We began in chapter 1 where Daniel is carried away in the first stage of three deportations from Judah to Babylon. Daniel was carried away in 605 B.C. He would have been about 15 years old at the time. He lived for 70 years in Babylon, which is a thoroughly pagan city and uh, evil rulers reigning over it. And in Daniel chapter 1, we saw the beautiful theme that God is sovereign in the lives of his children and sovereignly arranges the details of their lives for their good and for his strategic and eternal purposes. You remember Daniel chapter 1, we had that phrase, God gave. We had that several different times in chapter 1. God gave Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the one who brought them over, but it was actually God who gave. And we saw that God is faithful and sovereign over the execution of his judgment. That wasn't a surprise to God's people. God had told them through the prophets, if you do not repent, you will be given to the hands of your enemies and 
And so it was. They did not repent and they were turned over to Nebuchadnezzar. And then in the middle of Daniel 1, all the way to the end, we saw Daniel standing up in obedience, saying, we, we, we can't eat. That was the food portion, right? We can't eat what you're asking us to eat. Remember, he was respectful. He was kind. He was compassionate. This wasn't stick it to Babylon. This was, uh, we need to follow Yahweh. We just need to simply continue in our obedience. And God blesses. And then we saw at the end of chapter 1 that God sovereignly equips and places his children in strategic pur- places and, and purposes for his glory. Daniel's captivity looked on the surface like pretty much the end of the world for Israel, for Judah. But in fact, it was all part of God's plan. God's purpose in sending Daniel and his friends to Babylon was, yes, for judgment. But beyond that, it was for God's mercy to his people when they were going to come back 70 plus years later. And so we ended chapter 1 by listening to Sinclair Ferguson who said, We tend to see our trials as isolated nightmares. God, however, sees them from a different perspective. They are important and connected punctuation marks in the biography of grace that he is writing in our lives. We move to chapter 2. The theme of chapter 2 is God has a sovereign plan for all of human history. And that plan is disclosed for us in the dream. So chapter 1 is the food, chapter 2 is the dream. There's the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, the head of gold, which is Babylon, the chest and arms of silver, which is Medo-Persia, the belly and thighs of bronze, which is Greece, and the legs and feet of iron, and iron mixed with clay, which is Rome, and then this coming Rome 2.0. And so all of these earthly kingdoms were represented in that statue, but then we had that fifth kingdom that shows up and destroys the entire statue, and that's the rock that's made without hands coming out of the side that devastates that Uh, golden statue, that amazing, brilliant statue that had terrified Nebuchadnezzar. And that's the second coming of Christ. That is the establishment of Christ's kingdom here on earth that we'll talk more about in the coming days. But the point of Daniel chapter 2 is that God is sovereign. He has a sovereign plan for all of human history, and he's working out relentlessly, irresistibly, and certainly in every aspect of human history. The kingdoms of this world are temporary. Only God's kingdom lasts forever. Then we move to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the uh, fiery furnace. The theme of the chapter was that God is sovereign over governmental persecution, even of his people. In chapter 2, we see God sovereign over human history, and we might be tempted to say, well, if God's sovereign over every aspect of human history, then we as his people are surely going to be safe. And God says, no, just because I'm sovereign doesn't mean I'm going to keep you from suffering persecution. In fact, I might give you over to it. And so we see this massive statue. Remember Nebuchadnezzar built this 90-foot statue, and instead of it, uh, it probably looked like the one in his dream, except it didn't have four different medals. It had all one medal. It was all gold. I think this is Nebuchadnezzar uh, just spitting in the face of God's promise through that dream by saying, my kingdom will not end. You're saying that the head of gold is Babylon, and then it moves to Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome, but no, no, no. Babylon will exist forever. Very strong statement being made by Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, bow down and worship me and my kingdom. And he threatens with that fiery furnace, which is almost 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and temperature at which gold melts right under 2,000 degrees. And then you remember the story, the three friends are thrown in, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they come out, they don't even smell of smoke. Not a hair on their body is singed. You can't even sit next to a campfire for 10 minutes without smelling like smoke. 
But these three friends thrown in by, she- by Nebuchadnezzar, thrown into the fiery furnace, they don't smell like smoke at all. And it's showing us, chapter 3, that God's preserving them, but not just preserving them. God's preserving them so that they would help his people to be persevering throughout the rest of this captivity. Then we move to Daniel chapter 4, another dream. We saw the theme in Daniel 4 is that God is completely sovereign over every throne and every human ruler. 30 years have passed since the fire furnace in chapter 3, so there's a 30-year gap between 3 and 4. We have the incidents in chapter 4, this fascinating chapter. It's the only chapter in Scripture written by a man who was once a pagan king, and it's the only Old Testament passage written by a Gentile. Nebuchadnezzar in that passage has another dream, the dream of the tree. You remember Daniel tells him, you are not submitting to God. You and your pride are setting yourself as higher than God, better than God. And if you do not submit to him, if you do not repent, you are going to be thrust out, turned into this crazy man for a period of seven years. And lo and behold, Nebuchadnezzar does just that because he doesn't repent. He comes to believe that he's an animal. It's a psychological condition that we looked at called lycanthropy in which a person thinks that they are a particular kind of animal and begins to behave like that animal. It's still observable today. You can read accounts of it. And so it lasts for seven years until, in chapter 4, verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32 in chapter 4, until you recognize that the Most High God is the ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar, you need to realize God will never stop being in charge. He is your king. Submit to him. Finally, at the end of Daniel chapter 4, I believe that Nebuchadnezzar does submit. I think that's why we see what he writes in Daniel chapter 4. And he calls all people everywhere to submit to Yahweh as king. And we moved into Daniel chapter 5, fast forwarding yet again. Daniel chapter 5 shows us that God is completely sovereign over the rise and fall of empires and kingdoms of men. There's one day that Daniel 5 records. It's October 12th, 539 B.C. on the night of a particular feast where Belshazzar, now the king, though his uh, father Nabonidus is the one that's reigning over all of Babylon, he had moved, and so Belshazzar is the king in Babylon that's taking care of that province. They are under siege by the Persians, and we saw that incredible account where in absolute pride and disgust towards Yahweh, he brings out, Belshazzar brings out those Uh, vessels of of gold and silver from the temple treasury and drinks into the gods of gold and silver. And he says, our gods are stronger than Yahweh. Yahweh had promised that we would be defeated by Cyrus and the Persians. Not so. And lo and behold, they fall. They fall to the Persians under the lead of Cyrus. And God's promises are true and they happen. And that moved us into Daniel chapter 6. Now Cyrus is in control. Now Persia is ruling and reigning. And Daniel just lives no differently. He's just obeying the Lord. And because of that, he's thrown into the lion's den. The theme of Daniel 6 is that God is sovereign over the persecution of his people, even when it comes to the malicious use of unjust laws. We don't really get to see Daniel in the lion's den. We rather spend the night with uh, the king, with Darius or Cyrus. And we get to spend the night with him, watching him in anxiety, pacing back and forth while Daniel is in the lion's den, enjoying a great night and a conversation with the King of Kings, with Jesus himself. The same pre-incarnate Christ who had walked in the fire with Daniel's three friends some 50 years earlier was walking with Daniel in the lion's den. 
So Daniel 1 is the food, Daniel 2 is the dream, Daniel 3 is the fire furnace, Daniel 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's second dream of the tree, and he turns into the animal, Daniel 5 is Belshazzar's feast, and Daniel 6 is Daniel and the lion's den. Chapters 1 through 6 provide historic evidence that God's people will endure. They are stories that show us God's people will endure, no matter what happens. Chapters 7 through 12 provide prophetic promises that they will endure, how it's going to be brought about. Chapter 1 through 6 tells us that it can happen, and chapter 7 through 12 tells us that it will happen. It will continue to happen. God will preserve his people and establish his kingdom no matter what. So that's our short summary. Now let's move to the lessons learned. Okay, there's our summary of chapters 1 through 6. Now I want to move to the lessons learned. And again, this is a little bit of a different morning. And because it's a different morning, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do, which is uh, I'm going to go through 10 different points. Normally it's 2 or 3. I'm going to go through 10. And because I'm going through so many, I don't want you to have to feel responsible for writing all of them down. So I'm going to do two things. Number one, at the end, when we uh, review all 10 of them, I'm going to put it up on the PowerPoint. So you have it. You can write it down. You'll see it. You can write it at your leisure. And number two, I'll email these out as well, just in case you don't write them all down. I've been there before where you have the pressure to write down everything that the pastor's saying and you don't get it and you feel like I can't move on because I didn't write number three and now I can't write number four. Don't worry. Just let these truths spill over your heart. Write what you can, but let these truths just spill over your heart. And these are only ten. We, we could list a hundred. I had to pare these down. I started with about 33 and I had to pare these down to ten. And some of them, because I'm also a teacher you know those questions on exams when you can only give 100-point exams, 100 questions, but you have more questions than that, and you put, like, multiple questions inside of one question? You know those teachers where it's like, here's a question, but the question has an A part, a B part, a C part, a D part? And uh, I, I used to really not like those teachers, and lo and behold, I'm becoming one of them. Uh, I'm going to preach that way, too. I kind of had to put a bunch of points together inside these points. So 10 lessons. We'll move through them quickly. Number one. We have learned of the stunning majesty of God's word. We have learned of the stunning majesty of God's word. He fulfills every promise that he makes. Just three examples. Remember the opening verses that we just covered? The opening verses say they were deported into Babylon. Why were they deported into Babylon? Because that was a fulfillment of God's promise, of God's prophecy that was given. If you do not... In your repentance and obedience to the Lord, turn from idolatry, what's going to happen? You're going to be taken away, and lo and behold, they are. Every single prophecy that we've seen in this book, the, na the four nations in chapter 2 in that statue, the seven years of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, historically we have historical record that there was a period of about seven years that Nebuchadnezzar was not king, and people had to be put on the throne in his place. The writing on the wall that God describes exactly what's going to happen, and lo and behold, it does. Or just that incredible prophecy. It's really kind of a side note in the book of Daniel. But you remember in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 24 through 28, God had promised through Isaiah uh, over 100 years earlier that when Cyrus enters Babylon, he's going to overtake it and conquer it with the bronze gates being thrown open for him. He's not even going to have to fight or do anything as far as attacking that city to get into it and destroy it. And that's exactly what happens. Historians tell us from that time period that when the Persians entered the city, the bronze, that massive bronze gate that was there designed to stop any foe entering in was wide open already. Bottom line is this. I hope that every Lord's Day you have walked away with a bigger view of God and a greater awe of this book. 
This book is amazing. Give yourself to it every day. Open it, read it, enjoy it, be satisfied with it, wrestle through it, ask questions of it. This book is amazing, and we've seen that time and time again, and we're going to continue to see that as we move through chapter 7 through 12. Number two, God's heart is love for all the nations. We've seen this time and time again. God's heart is one of love for all the nations. We could sum it up in John 3, 16. God so loves the world. There are two main ways that you can outline this book. You can either split it up like we've done six chapters of narrative, six chapters of prophecy, but you can also split this book up into its languages. Chapter 1 through 2, verse 4, is in Hebrew. Chapter 2, verse 4b, right in the middle, switches to Aramaic all the way through chapter 7. And then chapter 8 through 12 is back to Hebrew. So it switches from Hebrew to Aramaic back to Hebrew. Why Aramaic? Why this switch? Well, we saw this switch because that language is the common language. It's the trade language of all of Babylon. Many of the Babylonians would not have known Hebrew, and God wants his message to be given to them, not just to his chosen people. And so he has given this message to Jew and Gentile alike. In fact, in this Aramaic section, seven times the phrase peoples, nations, and men of every language occurs. Therefore, this very Jewish book is written with Gentile readers in mind. Not only God's chosen people, but all people around the Jews, including Nebuchadnezzar. And who knows how many Babylonians end up submitting to Yahweh because of what this book is saying, including Persians, maybe even Cyrus. But definitely we know that there's going to be some wise men that are going to show up about 500 years after the, the writing of Daniel, and they're going to show up, and they're going to, I think because of Daniel, they're going to walk in to Bethlehem, and they're going to praise and worship Jesus as Messiah because they read of him in the book of Daniel. Bottom line is that God loves the nations. My question is, do you? Whether we are going to the nations or we're sending people to the nations, God means for his glory to be seen and savored by everyone. So pray for this to happen and let's work to make it happen in the world around us. A third lesson is that God has a perfect plan for human history. God has a perfect plan for human history. That's really the theme of the whole book. The whole book is that God is sovereign over the lives of individuals, the affairs of nations, the span of empires, and all of human history. He is El Elyon, the God Most High, used nine times in the book of Daniel, the sovereign one over all things. Even Daniel's name means God is judge, God is ruler over everything. And so what Daniel does is over the course of 70 years being exiled into Babylon, he sits down to write a manuscript and he has to handpick six different accounts, six to seven different accounts that he wants to give to you and to me. And so I, I believe he's sitting there writing, let's, let's include this account. No, no, not that one. Let's include this account. Well, no, let's include this account. Yes, that's a good account. We'll include that one. Let's include this. Every account that he's putting in here is an account that's given for the very express purpose of showing you that God is sovereign in your life today because he's been sovereign and he always will be sovereign. We will only live like Daniel in this world if we trust in Daniel's God. We see the phrase, the Lord gave over and over and over again. Those four words, and the Lord gave, are a sentiment of comfort to bolster readers who find themselves waiting for the arrival of God's promises. 
Those four words are a balm in the midst of disquieting circumstances and surroundings. And those four words, when everything seems lost and when life seems not worth living, those four words remind us that God is working out his promises in your life. We've said it this way, Daniel is is dramamine for a, a seasick soul. As you're being tossed in the storms of this life, you need Daniel to quiet and calm your heart. And God has not changed since the book of Daniel up to today. He is still there in your life wherever you may be. That's not in question. He is still there and he's not changed. The only question is, are you trusting him? Are you trusting him? Maybe you look at this book and you say, I don't have these massive big things. I'm not in threat of being thrown into the lion's den by my government. And so you would be easy, uh, just, it would be easy to dismiss the struggles you're going through, the trials you're going through, and to say, you know what, this isn't that big of a deal. I can deal with this on my own. I think Daniel is giving us the big deals to show us in the smallest details God is there as well. Trust him for those things. Maybe it's relationships that you have that just aren't quite repaired, aren't reconciled. Something's off. Something's not working right. And you think, you know what, I know God's sovereign over the big things, but he's not really caring about this. No, he's there. Maybe you're going through some form of heartache, whether it's family or maybe it's at work, maybe it's with friends, maybe it's a physical ailment that you're struggling with. Whatever it is, God is sovereign over all of it. The only question is, will you trust him? That led to a fourth lesson, a fourth lesson so far from Daniel 1 through 6. God has good purposes for his people in hard times. God has good purposes for his people in hard times. It would look like, as Daniel is being exiled into Babylon, that this is a hard time and this is bad and There can't be anything good coming out of this. And yet I believe that Daniel really is to the Babylonian captivity what Joseph was when he was sold as a slave in Egypt. You remember Joseph sold into slavery and you would think that's a very bad thing and yet God brings about, he means for it to be a very good thing. That's what Joseph tells his brothers. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant the very same thing for good. So whatever hardship you might be going through, God is working in it and through it for your greatest good and the good of those around you. I think about Jeremiah 29 where God writes to these captives and says, when you are in captive in Babylon, seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of those around you. Pray for them. Plant your roots down deep in that city and be uh, uh, an influence of godliness around them. So my question to us this morning is, do we see ourselves having been placed where we are together in this community by God to make his word known do you see yourself, or, or are you kicking against that? I hear a lot of Christians these days that are kicking against it. If only we can get out of L.A., if only we could leave. I hate this place and I want to get out of here. I totally understand it, but that's not the mindset of Daniel. The mindset of Daniel is, I want, wherever God has placed me, I want to be a breath of fresh air to those people around me and to speak the truth of God's word, bringing him glory and bringing my neighbors good. The fifth lesson that we've learned from this book is that God is with us in every trial. God is with us in every trial. Whether it's the fiery furnace, whether it's the lion's den, we learn that beautiful phrase that we said over and over again. The fourth man is always with us. Nebuchadnezzar looks in the fiery furnace and says, there's four men in there. That fourth man is Jesus, and he's always with us. That's why we say in Psalm 23, I will fear no evil because you are with me. 
We, we saw the reality that sometimes God delivers through us being preserved alive. Sometimes God delivers us by letting us die. But he always vindicates us and he always preserves us. Psalm 118, verse 13 through 14. This psalmist writes, You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Daniel and his three friends were literally pushed into a fiery furnace and into a lion's den, literally pushed, and God was with them. His, he was their strength, he was their song, and he has become their salvation. God is with us in every trial. Brothers and sisters, whatever you are going through, God is right there with you. He is in the midst of that problem with you. And that's why we said how amazing it would be to be Daniel's three friends or to be Daniel himself in the midst of those situations. And when you're given the open door to get out, how crazy would it be to say, I don't want to leave yet. If it means that I have to stay here to be with my Savior, I don't want to leave. I want to be with him. I don't want to leave Wherever you are, Jesus is where I want to be, even if that means staying in the trial. God is with us in every trial. Number six, the sixth lesson that we learned is that uh, we've learned the failure of false religion. We've seen this time and time again. We've learned of the failure of false religion. We saw those Chaldeans, those sorcerers, those uh, fortune tellers. They could never get anything right in this book. They're constantly getting the answer incorrect or not even giving an answer at all because they cannot know. From the first dream of the statue in chapter 2 to the second dream in chapter 4 of the tree to the handwriting of the wall, all of them prove to us that false religion is pointless. It profits nothing. False religion condemns people to hell. And that's why we need to, with all compassion and clarity, share the truth of God's word to the people around us. Because the false religion that they may be involved in not only doesn't profit them in this life, it's useless here, but it will condemn them in eternity. We laughed a lot at these Chaldeans and how worthless their religion is. But there were two people in this book that I don't think we were supposed to laugh at. I don't think we ever really did. And I think it leads to the next lesson that we've learned. We've learned the depravity of our own sinfulness. We've learned of the depravity of our own sinfulness. We've seen Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in their absolutely horrific sin. And instead of laughing at them or laughing, watching them going through what they're going through, like we did with the Chaldeans, we look at them and there's an uneasiness in our heart. Because we're so similar to them. We know that we are struggling in the exact same kind of sin. Maybe in a different form for sure. Remember Belshazzar. Daniel confronts Belshazzar and says, It's not that you didn't know. You were not ignorant. You acted, even though you knew the truth, you acted in defiance against God. He wasn't ignorant, yet he still defied God. And so God exposed his sin and says, You are found wanting. That's all of us acting in, not in ignorance, but acting in willful rebellion against God. And God says, I will find you wanting. You are lacking. We saw Nebuchadnezzar, he knew Yahweh as well. The first dream that he had, the fiery furnace, the second dream, he knew all of those things. He interacted with Yahweh on a personal level. And yet he still defied God in chapter 4. 
We saw his pride that reared its ugly head time and time again. We saw pride's slogan, by my power, for my glory. That's what pride does. Pride establishes itself as saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do by my power, for my glory. That's who I am and that's why I live. We said, by nature, we are all a bunch of Nebuchadnezzars. We are so easily impressed by ourselves and we attempt to take complete responsibility for all of our success. But when you think about it, it's just a form of insanity. Sanity will return only when we humble ourselves before God and we begin to look up to him in humility, praise, and worship. We saw Nebuchadnezzar restored. We saw his reason return. We saw him, I believe, ultimately saved. And we saw that our story is really the same as Nebuchadnezzar's story. We were blinded by pride. We were humbled to the dust. We came to our senses and God saved us. But we don't want to run away too fast from this point of our own depravity. We've seen it in these two figures in Daniel. Often we would like to think, man, we are the Daniels in the story. I think we tend to be more Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And what God did to Nebuchadnezzar, he will do to us if necessary. Where are you in this pathway? Still in your pride saying, I'm, I'm pretty much God's gift to the world. I'm doing amazing and I wish everybody knew who I was? Or are you saying, you know what? I want to decrease, and I want Christ to increase. That's all I care about, that God's glory would be known and seen and savored in my life. We all need to turn to Matthew chapter 5, where we are poor in spirit. We all need to turn there every morning. Turn to that passage every morning and wake up with the, the sense of, blessed are the poor in spirit. I have nothing. I still have nothing to offer you. That led us to an eighth lesson. We saw God's terrifying judgment and his amazing grace. We saw God's terrifying judgment and his amazing grace. Belshazzar swept away in an instant, in one day. Here's the, the verdict, here's the pronouncement of judgment, and here's the execution of it. We saw Nebuchadnezzar in a different time frame of God's judgment. God said, here's what's going to happen if you don't repent. He gave him time. He gave him an opportunity. And then about a year later, Nebuchadnezzar, is, uh, the sentence is passed and executed against him. Belshazzar, it's in a night. Nebuchadnezzar, it's in a year. One of the lessons that we learned is we don't know the timing of God's judgment. We don't know if we're going to have tomorrow. There was an urgency in this book thus far to say, get right with God now. Turn to Christ now. Trust in Jesus now. You don't know if you have tonight. And then there, at the same time, there was amazing grace. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a year. He didn't repent. God thrust him out into the wilderness for seven years, and then he came back to his senses, repentant, turning to Yahweh. There was such beautiful picture of God's amazing grace in that section that I think uh, compelled us to not lose heart. When we look around at those in our lives who we've been praying for for years, and it just seems hopeless. They're never going to believe. They're never going to turn. Man, if there was anybody who is a hopeless case, it's Nebuchadnezzar. And God is patient, and he's waiting, and he's using us. We've seen God's judgment come in different timings, sometimes very quickly, sometimes slowly, often slowly, especially in this book. We can see on a grand scale in the book of Daniel, grand scale of human history, that judgment is coming. And I think a lot of people ask the question, why isn't it coming now? Why on a grand scale doesn't Jesus just break into human history, bring uh, the, the kingdom now? Why is he waiting? 
C.S. Lewis asked this question. He said, quote, why is God landing in this enemy-occupied world in disguise? It's starting a sort of secret society to undermine the devil. That's us. We're the church. We're the secret society. Why is he not landing in force, invading it all? Is it, that, is it not that he's uh, strong enough? Is it that he's not strong enough? Well, Christians think that he's going to land in force. We just don't know when. But we can guess why he's delaying. And I would say we can know why he's delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it's the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. So we saw God's terrifying judgment of one individual in one night. My prayer is that we would, with a sense of urgency, realize there is a day coming when when Jesus returns, that's it. That's it. Judgment happens. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. So realize God's terrifying judgment, and in light of that, realize how beautiful and amazing God's grace is. Number nine, we've seen how to live as exiles in this world. We've seen a ninth lesson, which is how to live as exiles in this world, whether it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whether it's Daniel, whether it's the people around them. We've seen various lessons learned from their life. Be gracious, be humble, be respectful, be completely unintimidated by human authority. Be completely confident in God's delivering power regardless of the danger. Be completely submissive to God's will regardless of the consequence. Know that life is filled with moments of fear. Realize and have compassion. Respond with compassion towards your enemies. Respectfully speak God's truth. Reasonably plead for repentance to take place. Honor God and how you live differently in the world. Understand that the world will hate you. Worship God even though it will cost you. Trust in God's deliverance however he would see fit and position yourself to be used by God to glorify him however he would see fit. We've seen all of those different lessons in various sermons and I think we can sum them up in two main points. Number one, be faithful in the little. Just remain faithful. Remember Daniel just didn't change anything. From chapter one, hey, that's not what we eat. Can we not eat it? We've never eaten that because that's not what we eat. That's not what God's people eat. We're God's people. Can we just not eat it? That's all he's saying. And to Daniel chapter 6, I'm not going to change what I'm doing. I've been praying this way the entirety of my life. I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to continue. And so my question to us is, are you obeying in the little now? We've said it a lot, that these monumental moments of trial are not what create the character that's going on inside of us. It just reveals what the character already is. Don't compromise now. Do you joyfully submit to God's will now? Do you fear him and not man? And then a second lesson that we've seen time and time again is just don't place your hope in people to deliver. Place your hope in God to save. Don't place your hope in people to deliver. Dale Ralph Davis says, you may have rulers or others in high places who are well disposed towards you, But don't rest in them as your trump card, for even they, for all their apparent power, will prove as helpless as Samson without hair. I love that. I I think that's a lesson that Christians need to hear and own and glory in today. It's It's a different lesson from 
the very in-your-face political Christianity that we see going on in our world today. Obviously, God's given us the ability because of the land that we live in and the governmental system that we live in to have a voice in government. Praise the Lord. And we should use it respectfully, graciously. But I think that this, this book has asked some questions of why we do it and how we do it. I love the way that one author says it. This is just, I think, very, very helpful. It's a, it's a lengthy quote, but just listen as he kind of responds to evangelicalism. This was written in the 1990s, so it's a little bit away in the past, but I think it's helpful. He says this, I must say in an aside, I worry about the recent surge of power among U.S. Christians who seem to be focusing more and more on political means. Evangelicals, especially now, are identified with a certain political stance, so much so that the news media used the term evangelical and religious right interchangeably. When I ask a stranger, what is an evangelical Christian, I get an answer something like this, someone who supports family values and opposes homosexual rights and abortion. This trend troubles me because the gospel of Jesus was not primarily a political platform. The issues that confront Christians in a secular society must be faced and addressed and legislated, and a democracy gives Christians every right to express themselves. But we dare not invest so much in the kingdom of this world that we neglect our main task of introducing people to a different kind of kingdom, one based solely on God's grace and forgiveness. Passing laws to enforce morality serves a necessary function to dam up evil, but it never solves human problems. If a century from now, all that historians can say about evangelicals of the 1990s is that they stood for family values, then we will have failed the mission Jesus gave us to accomplish, to communicate God's reconciling love to sinners. From Jesus, and I would also say from Daniel, we learn that whatever activism I get involved in, it must not drive out love and humility or otherwise I betray the kingdom of heaven. I love the way that we've seen Daniel just live his life in simple obedience and let God do what he will with that faithful testimony. This author goes on to say, ironically, if the U.S. is truly sliding down a slippery moral slope, which I think we can say it is, that may better allow the church, as it did in Rome and also in China, to, and he quotes a, another uh, author, to, to set up a new sign which is full of promise. He's saying it, it will flourish to grow in the kingdom of God, to grow in godliness and godly living as we descend into this moral slippery slope. Then he says this, I love his honesty, I would much prefer, I admit, to live in a country where the majority of people follow the Ten Commandments, act with civility toward each other, and, ha and have their heads bowed once a day for a bland bipartisan prayer. I would love that. I feel a certain nostalgia for the social climate of the 1950s in which I grew up. But if that environment does not return, I will not lose any sleep. As America slides, I will work and pray for the kingdom of God to advance. But if the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, then the contemporary political scene hardly offers much threat. That's the kind of confidence we need to have. That's the kind of assurance we need to have. Yes, get involved in politics. Amen and amen. But do so 
holding that so loosely because you are working primarily as a Christian to bring in the kingdom of God in this world and so much less as a United States citizen. And brothers and sisters, we cannot be afraid of the days to come because if the church can attack to the gates of hell and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, then the contemporary political scene hardly offers much threat. May we laugh at the days ahead. May we rejoice in the days ahead. That leads to the tenth lesson that we've learned in this book. And we can go ahead and throw that slide up so you can see all ten points. Normally I would summarize all of them right now. We're going to run out of time. So you can see all ten points there behind me. But the last one, we can and we must live with joyful, confident, anxious, free assurance because God is sovereign. This is the lesson of Daniel. We've seen every part, all the nine lessons that we've talked about thus far, lead us to this conclusion. This is the lesson of Daniel. We can live with joyful, confident, anxious, free assurance because God is sovereign. We can. The question is, are you? Would people around you describe you as an anxious person, as a fearful person, as a worrying person? Or would they describe you as a joyful person, free from anxiety, confidently assured of what God's doing in the future? Daniel's telling us the very simple reality, and we're seeing it in Ecclesiastes as well. We are not driving this bus. God is. And so we have one of two choices. We can either sit on the bus, gripping the seat in front of us with white knuckles, worried at every turn about what's going to happen to us, and to our lives, to our nation, to the world. Or you can sit back and enjoy the ride, because you know you're not driving this bus. You know God is, and you know where he's driving it. We're going to get to the same destination either way. So let's enjoy it, right? That's the whole point of Ecclesiastes. Is this life all about gain? What I have to gain? What I have to keep? What I have to hold on to? Or is it a gift? We've been given an amazing gift, just continuing to think on and meditate on the political climate of America. We've been given a gracious gift by the Lord in our country over the last couple hundred years. We've been given an amazing gift. And maybe it's time for that gift to go away as we've known it. That's okay. That doesn't change the way we live, just like Daniel, right? New regime. Persia walks in, Cyrus is king, and he goes, nah, nothing's changed. I just keep trusting God and obeying him. God is sovereign. We're going to make it home. Brothers and sisters, we're going to make it home. And we will live in the kingdom of God forever. Jesus shall reign forever. I love that hymn. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun doth its successive journeys run. He's going to reign over everything. So don't be discouraged. We haven't reached home. That's why life is the way it is right now. We haven't reached home. I think that's what Daniel's telling us. Uh, we're in Judah, and then we're in Babylon, and we're in Persia. Doesn't change the way I live my life. Don't be discouraged. Alistair Begg says it this way, we know and we will increasingly know what it means to be pushed hard by the antagonism of our culture. We know and we will increasingly know what it's like to feel that we cannot stand. But we can also know the help of the Lord who is sovereign. We can know what it is to be strengthened, to hold the line, to obey, to witness, and to act with compassion. We can keep singing of the Lord who has saved us, who has saved us not from trials but through trials and who has supremely saved us from his judgment so that we may look forward to reaching home beyond our death. We've been pushed hard, we are falling, and we've been helped and strengthened to sing 
We are singing as those saved by God. By faith, that was the story of the exiles in Babylon, all the way from Jerusalem. And by faith, it is the story of exiles in this world today, along the way from heaven. We are a long way from heaven, but we are always walking towards it. Jesus shall reign. Eric Little, when he left as a missionary to China, he got on the boat, and as he was leaving, he started singing that song. Jesus shall reign in England and for him in China and America. Jesus shall reign. Alistair Begg goes on to say, If by God's grace you understand that Jesus reigns, then you too will live like Eric Little, even when it seems like the world is triumphing and that Christ's church is under pressure. That does not necessarily mean that you're going to go to China. But it does mean that because you have faith in the God who rules, you will live bravely, live confidently, and live obeying Jesus and proclaiming Jesus, even in a land that neither understands your decisions nor welcomes your message. Don't look back to the glory days. I love that he says that. Live well in this day. If you're a banker, be a banker to the glory of God. If you're a teacher, teach to the glory of God. If you're a scientist, research to the glory of God. If you're a salesman, sell to the glory of God. Just be who you are, where you are, obedient and confident in the conviction that God is accomplishing the eternal counsel of his will and that he's drawing you into the story into which he drew Daniel and those exiles. The story of how he is bringing in his kingdom to this world until the day when it stretches from shore to shore. Living like this will not be easy. It may well get harder. But it is possible because when we are pushed hard and we are falling we have a God who is more than capable of helping us, saving us, and causing us to sing of him. We can be and we must be brave by faith. Ten amazing lessons that we've learned. The stunning majesty of God's word. God's heart being love for all the nations. God having a perfect plan for all of human history. God's good purposes for his people in hard times. God being with us in every trial. The failure of false religion. The depravity of our own sinfulness. That God's judgment is terrifying, but his grace is so amazing. How to live as exiles in this world. And the reality that we can and we must live with joyful, confident, anxious, free assurance. Because God is sovereign. Years ago, when the Supreme Court decided to change the definition of marriage, taking, themselves, uh, taking to themselves an authority that belongs to God alone, Alistair Begg wrote in his journal that evening, quote, this is the saddest day of my life in America. But then he added, but I know that God is still in charge. So we proceed accordingly. I know that God's in charge. And I'm resolved to live that way because I know the God whom Daniel knew. The only question is, do you? Father, thank you so much for this book that we've been able to study thus far. Thank you for the example of Daniel who is constantly pointing us to you. You are the hero of this story, not us, not Daniel, not the exiles, not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We are all sinful failures, and you and you alone are the hero. And so we've seen Daniel's testimony. We're only halfway through, and we've seen his testimony that's just leveled us to the dirt. Oh, how often we do not trust you. Oh, how often in our fear, in our anxiety, maybe even in our pride of thinking, you know what, you handle the big stuff, I'll take care of the little stuff. 
We just don't bring it to you. Like we said earlier, we sang it earlier. Oh, what peace we often forfeit just because we don't bring it to you in prayer. God, thank you for Daniel. I cannot wait to talk with him in heaven one day. And to thank him for writing these words to give us confidence in this culture, in this context, for this hour. God, we are here for a reason, for such a time as this. Make us faithful as we trust in you, our great God. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you.